0: You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral
1: Theology and Leadership. I think the whole thing is exciting. (laughs) It's a difficult question to answer, but it's all exciting and always fresh. That was how today's guest answered my question about what part of the Book of Acts stands out to him. Today's guest is Dr. David Bauer. Dr. David Bauer is the Ralph Waldo Beeson Professor of Inductive Biblical Studies and Dean of the School of Biblical Interpretation at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. That's where I went to seminary, and certainly Dr. Bauer's influence is keen and has shaped the way that I engage scripture. Dr. Bauer is the author or co-author of several books, but today we are talking about the Book of Acts' story, a narrative critical study published by Baker Press. And in today's episode, we talk about the Book of Acts. We also talk about what narrative criticism is, or literary criticism is, and how we can become attuned readers to literature such as the Book of Acts. In today's episode, you'll hear some of Dr. Bauer's fresh insights, some of the ways that the Scripture continues to surprise him, and how it has been fresh and encouraging and engaging to him. Today's episode, we'll talk about conflicts in the church, We'll talk about how to read Acts well. We'll talk about different characters in the book of Acts and how it might implicate ways that you could use Acts in your ministry. In fact, in today's episode, we have a passage of scripture that I'm gonna go back as soon as I have the chance to go back and reread it because today's conversation sparked a new way of reading the passage for me. Indeed, isn't that what God so often does as we have open minds and open hearts and are willing to accept the guidance of people who have gone before and done careful study is that God often drives us back to the biblical text. I trust that today's episode will do just that for you. We'll drive you back to the biblical text, but with just a bit more maturity, encouragement, and maybe a few more tools to read it well. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley and you belong here. My name is Victoria Borum and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti and I am
0: Wesley. My name is Chris, and guess what, I am Wesley.
1: Hi, I'm Tina Schappett, and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley.
0: I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley.
1: I am Colleen Durr, and I belong here. You belong here too, because we
0: are Wesley.
1: Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Doctor Bauer. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Aaron. It's very uh, much a pleasure for me to be with you, and uh, and also a privilege. We are talking about the Book of Acts today, and you've recently published the Book of Acts as Story, a narrative critical study. It's published by Baker. Now we're going to get into a little bit of the the meat of that text and and what it means by a, a narrative critical study and these kinds of things. But first, I'd like to begin by asking you how did you become interested in the book of acts to begin with
0: as a matter of fact i never had a course in the book of acts as i recall uh, but when i started teaching here at asbury seminary about 37 38 years ago i realized just how gripping a story the book of acts is but it's not was not only a matter of it being a gripping story but also it was a story that clearly was meant to communicate great theological and pastoral and spiritual truth. And so uh, one of the first things I did when I joined the faculty here at Asbury Seminary was to introduce an inductive Bible study course on the book of Acts. And I've actually taught that probably every, on average, every three years over the past uh, 37 years. So I've had a great deal of opportunity to interact with students on the book of Acts. And of course, with each opportunity to teach the, the, the book of Acts, I've delved into it again, and my original sense of its richness has been reinforced again and again and again.
1: You might wonder, or at least I, I might wonder, maybe listeners would wonder, but after after studying it and reading it, then writing on it so thoroughly over such a length of time, you wonder if there's something that still stands out and surprises you. So maybe I'd ask you, is there one story or portion of Acts that you always find surprising or meaningful or that you gravitate towards perhaps in your own personal reading or that you spend a little bit more time on whenever you're teaching the class just because it's personally interesting to you?
0: You know, Aaron, I'm often asked that question and it's very difficult to answer it uh, because frankly, and I don't say this out of any sense of exaggeration, I find it to be the case that every passage is really exciting. I come away with fresh insights whenever I study or work with any passage, really, in the, in the book of Acts. I suppose, you know, if I had to choose maybe one or two favorite portions of Acts, certainly one of them would be the whole account of Stephen and Stephen's sermon there in the sixth and seventh chapters of the book of Acts. That sermon, or that is often referred to as, as Stephen's defense, although he really does not defend himself against the charges made, Uh, there, as I point out in the book, what he really addresses in his speech there are the implications behind the charges that are made. The theological assumptions with regard to Jesus Christ and regarding the temple and regarding the law, it's that which, which Stephen actually addresses there. So it's not really, technically speaking, Stephen's defense. He's not interested in defending himself. He's actually proclaiming the gospel there in that speech, but that speech is a theological interpretation of Israel's history from the perspective of Jesus Christ. And it emphasizes, of course, the great saviors of Israel's history and the ways in which God has put forward these saviors, but also how the people throughout their history have rejected the saviors that God has set before them, has sent to them, which really leads to idolatry it led always to idolatry. That's a point of Stephen's speech. And therefore, of course, Stephen draws a conclusion that if you do not accept Jesus, the Savior that God has now sent to you, no matter how fine-tuned your worship in the temple is, it will be idolatrous worship. But it's really fascinating to see the connections that Stephen makes, very subtle connections that Stephen makes between his discussion of what happened in Israel's history, say in the case of Moses, or before him, in the case of Joseph, how he makes very subtle but meaningful connections between what he says there with regard to these matters of Old Testament history and what is going on in the narrative of the book of Acts. And it's really when you see those connections that you understand just how rich that speech of Stephen is and how much it illumines the story of the book of Acts that we have.
1: I appreciate what you say about any worship that is not centered on Jesus will end up being idolatrous worship, will end up being misguided worship, and will have negative effects. Because I think you see that consistently through Acts, whenever there's people that are trying to, to manipulate, when there are people that are trying to manipulate the gospel or their own actions to their own ends, you see the, the devastating effects. So I think of Ananias and Sapphira, who are lying and trying to manipulate to their own benefit. I'm thinking of Simon the magician, and likewise, how can he purchase the Holy Spirit so that this is something that he, he has control of? And you see the devastating effects of, of idolatry. At the same time, you also see people like Paul who are radically engaged in the religious life of those cities that they're addressing, that they're bringing the good news to. And in effect, whenever they confront what Paul recognizes as idolatry, it's really threatening to the local people, right? It's very threatening whenever the systems of religious life that are set up that bind the whole community together, whenever those are confronted, it can be very threatening. Maybe with that in mind, and you can feel free to talk about and illustrate using any of those stories or others that I haven't mentioned, why do you think the Acts might be important reading for all Christians and preaching for those who have a, a preaching ministry and then study for all Christians? Again, why might Acts be important for Christians today?
0: Well, as I mentioned, Acts is more than a story. It is a story that is Clearly told in order to communicate the truth of God, in order to teach and instruct and edify the church and people in the church. There are people and have been throughout uh, the history of the church, but especially in recent decades and centuries, who assume that because this is a story, which ostensibly is a story about the emergence of the earliest church that that's all it is, and that its role is essentially to give us information about how the church began, that it exists only in order to communicate information about these events, but it, it has no function beyond that. And that simply is not the case. As matter of fact, you know, it's, although it's, a, it's certainly true that you, that you do not have an epistle written to Christians, which on its surface. You know, talks about what you ought to believe and what you ought to to do. Luke's instruction with regard to how Christians should form their lives, how they should think, how they should behave, is actually communicated precisely through the story. And that is why, of course, the book of Acts is canonical scripture. It is proclamation, it is instruction, every bit as much as the epistle of Romans is. So I don't think it can be emphasized too much the teaching and instructive and formational purpose, profoundly formational purpose of this story.
1: How do we wrestle through the the distinction that sometimes people will bring to the book of Acts that was description, but it's not prescription? And I have in mind, you know, there's, there's inevitably the challenge of people seeing the early church holding everything in common, and, you know, some people who are economically better trained than I am will say, well, there's there's risks and dangers with this, and then other, other times there might be another issue, and people will say, well, Acts is describing what the early church did, but it's not necessarily prescribing what the church should do for all time. How do we sort out when Acts is doing one or the other, or what would you say to that question?
0: What I tried to communicate a few minutes ago is that X is prescribing through describing, You have prescription through description, and that's really the the, the key to understanding it. That is to say, asking yourself, as you interpret the book of Acts, exactly what is going on here? Why has Luke included this and included it here where he has, and why has he described it in the way he has? What is he really trying to tell us through the inclusion of this story? through the placement of this story, through the telling of this story, that will affect us in terms of the way we think about the gospel, the way we think about Jesus Christ, and the way we think about what obedience is all about
1: or what is involved in obedience. So you've written this commentary, which is a narrative critical study. I'm going to invite you to share a little bit more about what narrative criticism means, and then let's use some of this approach to talk about some of the aspects of the story of Acts, maybe some of the, the characters in particular. I'd love to hear your thoughts in Ananias and Sapphira, for example. But before we get into that, what does it mean to engage the text through narrative criticism?
0: Well, narrative criticism, sometimes it's also referred to as literary criticism, is a way of approaching the interpretation of, of biblical materials, a biblical narrative, which takes seriously their narrative character. You mentioned that I'm a professor of inductive biblical studies, and you'll remember, Aaron, that one of the key convictions of an inductive approach to the study of the Bible is that any book should be read and studied according to its own nature. The most obvious observation that we can make with regard to the book of Acts is that it is basically story. Now, it's true that you have, you know, speeches and Most of these speeches are sermons that are interspersed throughout the book of Acts, but they are woven into the story. They are part of the story. And as a matter of fact, as I point out in the book, those speeches are themselves mini narratives. Almost in every case, those speeches actually themselves tell their own story. And so you have stories embedded within this larger story. But at any rate, it is essentially a narrative. And therefore, it must be studied if you're going to study it properly and, and well and get the most out of it, it should be studied as narrative. And what narrative criticism does is to give us the tools to read this story well as narrative, so as to draw out all the richness and the depth that the inspired writer, Luke, wants to communicate.
1: So one of the ways that Luke will do this and stories will do this in particular is by introducing characters that have certain contrasts with one another. So with Ananias and Sapphira, we have those who are are misleading, they're telling lies and they've lied to the Holy Spirit, and the consequences of their actions is in part to safeguard the church by the Holy Spirit. And you mentioned then later on how Barnabas becomes a contrasting character, a foil to Ananias. Talk to us a little bit about how characters can play a role, or maybe using illustrating the contrast between Ananias and Barnabas. How do characters play a role in how we ought to read the story of Acts? Well, one of
0: the main ways in which a a writer who produces a narrative communicates meaning is through characters. And it is true that characters are normally related to each other by way either of contrast or comparison. I might mention uh, that one of the features that you have certainly emphasized in Luke's telling of the story here in the book of Acts is repeated comparison between Peter and Paul. In instance after instance after instance, you have a parallel between what Peter does there in the earlier chapters of Acts and then what Paul does in the later chapters of Acts. And Luke has a very distinctive reasons, very important reasons for emphasizing those points of similarity between Peter and Paul. But in the case of Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, you're quite right, you have the element of contrast here. And of course, how characterization is important here is it gives us the tools for analyzing how Luke presents these characters in depth. You know, you do have Barnabas presented here in uh, chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and then Ananias and Sapphira in 5.1 through 11. And uh, basically, you have here two ways of living into the gospel, a successful way, a proper way, and an unsuccessful way and an improper way. And it's interesting that, of course, what you have here in the case both of Barnabas and of Ananias and Sapphira focuses upon the use of money and the relationship also between the person and the apostles. In the book of Acts, generally, and actually this is found also in Luke's gospel, money basically represents the power of this age, the power of this world. And how one responds to the gospel is indexed by that person's relation to money or material things. So that a person who really embraces the gospel will repudiate the ultimate significance of the power of this age, which is reified in money and will use money or consider money in the service of the gospel of Christ, of the kingdom of God, over against those who do not really understand or fully accept the gospel, who will express their resistance to the claims of the gospel over their lives and over the world by holding on to money. This is their way of saying that the power of this world, in their thinking, to some extent, continues to be greater than the power of the kingdom of God. And so Barnabas had it right. Ananias and Sapphira Had it wrong. They really wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to be in the church. They wanted the adulation of the apostles. You're told there at the end of chapter four that the apostles surnamed Barnabas, son of encouragement. That was a great commendation. They wanted that kind of recognition for themselves. But of course, they also wanted the security of their possessions, of their money. And so they are presented here as hypocrites who want it both ways. They they, They want to give the impression that they're doing what Barnabas did, which earned him this approbation on the part of these leaders of the church. But they did not want to follow Barnabas's example in terms of actually giving over his resources to the community as a whole and the welfare of others, especially poor in the community, which was, as I say, is viewed in Luke Acts as a manifestation of repentance. This is what embracing the kingdom uh, looks like of course, the case of Barnabas, he brought the, he, as well others in the church, brought the proceeds of what he owned and laid them at the apostles' feet. That is a cipher, really. This business of feet is a cipher in Acts for submitting to authority. Now, he was submitting to the authority of the apostles as those who had been designated by our Lord himself to lead this new community and eschatological community of the church. So it showed really a submission to the authority of Christ through the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the whole church and particularly to Peter. So they were rejecting both the gospel's understanding of the role of money and how money should function within the Christian life, and also the submission to the apostles, which really means submission to the teaching And the approach and the orientation of the apostles, apostolic authority, we might say, in that sense, they rejected that as well. And that's clarified and given great depth for us as readers as we probe the meaning of these stories and the meaning of these characters through the tools of narrative criticism.
1: One of the things that fascinates me in the story of Acts is that you have a, a disruption in the church between the Hebrew-speaking, the Aramaic-speaking widows and the Greek-speaking widows. And people start to grumble about this, right? There's mutterings, there's murmurings of, of some inequality here. The apostles go about setting aside who can address this. And I find it really interesting that they, they say they're not going to stop doing what they're doing in order to do this service. So they're going to appoint people who are well-qualified to do that. But I wonder, and and you can speak to this, my question here is, I wonder if there's a subtle criticism from Luke in how they've gone about addressing this because of the people that they set aside, two of them, Stephen and Philip, end up people who are doing deep ministry of prayer in the word, which the apostles say they're not going to stop doing, right? They're they're going to keep on doing ministry of prayer in the word and they'll entrust other people to handle this inequality of service. But two of the people they set aside to do this service end up being people who have prominent work of prayer through Stephen, prominent work of the word through Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Is there a subtle criticism there of the apostles in a way that, that maybe keeps challenging our, our conceptions of authority and, and the activity that God is doing through people who are diligent in serving in the church? Is there, is there something there that, that Luke is telling us? I'm glad you brought up that passage because I think this is one
0: of the most misunderstood passages in the whole book of Acts. Modern people tend, you know, to read Acts 6 there, which has to do with the distribution of food or the serving of tables, as it's often translated, and take it as grunt work. The apostles are overburdened because they are preaching the word, but they are also responsible for serving tables, that is to say, distributing food to the widows and you know coming at it from a modern point of view we think we tend to think well you know this distribution of food is grunt work and it's menial work and uh, so they're shifting those menial responsibilities over to this group of seven often referred to as the deacons which as you say includes Philip and Stephen uh, so that they can go about the more important more noble work of continuing to uh, engage in the ministry of the word again if you read the book of acts as a whole read this in context, in the context of the whole story, and keeping narrative considerations carefully in mind, you see that actually the distribution of food is a sign of authority. That's exactly how it functions in the the passage, Aaron, that you were referencing a few moments ago, Acts 4, 32 through 37 where the apostle's authority is described in terms of the members of the church bringing the proceeds of what they sold and laying these proceeds at the apostles' feet for the apostles to distribute. Money, wealth, possessions, these material things are representative of power and of how we relate to power. And so this distribution of food is really an expression of authority, the authority of the apostles. What the apostles do in chapter six then by putting forward this proposal to shift the distribution of food from them, away from themselves, to the seven, the deacons, so-called, is they are actually giving over a large portion of their authority to this other group for the sake of the unity of the church. So it's a very selfless act, really. It's, it's really a, an act of repudiating or at least setting aside, shifting over to another group, a measure of authority that the apostles have held. Now, one of the subtleties in Acts, and you picked this up, is that that authority is represented by the distribution of the food, but is not restricted to distribution of the food. that is to say, this business of the authority to distribute food is actually a symbol, kind of a cipher for authority more generally, including the authority to proclaim the word up to the beginning of the sixth chapter in Acts, only the apostles preach and teach. It's not an accident that there is a connection made here in chapter six between the authority of distributing food and the first proclamation by a non-apostle, namely by Stephen, one of the seven here. In other words, Luke is saying that there is proclamatory authority that is also now being shifted away from the apostles to others in the church.
1: And this was the apostles' idea themselves. I appreciate that insight, and it's given me something to, to reflect upon. I start to see it as, not as a critique, but as the natural outflow of authority given, right? The natural outflow of this authority given to the seven to engage in the distribution of food to solve this problem of injustice, the natural outflow of that is proclamation, is a ministry of the word. That's In a sense, maybe we'd say it's exactly what you would expect whenever authority is given. You would expect to have more preachers and more people ministering the word. Well, this picks up on two themes that you have in Acts. One is the
0: shift away from sole authority lodged in the apostolic circle to that authority, including authority to preach and teach, being given to others and being exercised by others throughout the book of Acts. What you have in chapter 6 is a part of that. By the way, it's interesting to note in in Acts 1-8, Jesus says there, and and I believe that Acts 1-8 is actually kind of a summary of the entire book, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is spoken to the apostles and to others who who joined them there. Apparently, there were others besides the apostles, but it was directed primarily to the apostles and a small number of others who were with them. But if you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that the apostles, according to the narrative of Acts, do not witness to the ends of the earth, That's say in chapters 13 through 28, that the witness of the apostles is almost entirely exclusively found in, in, in the Jerusalem period, in chapters 1 through 7. They do a bit of it in chapters 8 through 12, but in chapters 8 through 12, it's non-apostles who dominate in terms of bearing witness to all Judea and Samaria. As I say, once you get to chapters 13 through 28 to the end of the earth, the apostles are not portrayed in Luke's narrative as engaged in that witness at all. So that's why I say that one of the concerns of Luke is to show how the exalted Christ sovereignly moves the church away from sole or exclusive dependence upon the ministry of the apostles to the ministry of others. That's one thing that's picked up there in chapter six. Another thing that's involved in chapter six, that way in which it ties in with what's going on more broadly in the book of narratives, is that you have in the book of Acts a series of conflict resolutions within the church. As a matter of fact, you have in Acts a double plot line. The one plot line describes the evangelistic ministry and success of the church to the outside world. The other plot line has to do with what's going on within the church. And Luke interweaves those two plot lines. But what you have going on repeatedly within the church are conflicts that arise. By the way, in each case, these conflicts arise out of good things that are happening in the church's evangelistic work. Good things that God is doing through the church and the church's evangelistic work, in each case, serve as the occasion for a conflict within the church. You have that right here in chapter 6, quite clearly. But in each of these cases, you have conflict resolution so that Luke wants to give instruction to the church as to how the church can, in a healthy and kingdom-principled way, bring about resolution
1: of conflict within the body. I can imagine that being a, a great series of sermons, right? <laughs> Maybe not in the midst of conflict itself. Maybe you want to apply some wisdom, and kind of work these into your personal conversations, but every church goes through conflict. And one of the ways that you prepare for conflict is talking about it before you have it and setting some, setting some wisdom that's into the community mindset, into the, into the shared imagination. That might be a great way that somebody could take the book of Acts and faithfully and without agenda, right in the heat of the moment, but faithfully prepare their church or their small group, or their family, right? Faithfully be prepared for conflict that comes as a result of God being active in that church, family, or small group.
0: Yes, that, that's right. And also, uh, that's exactly, I think, what Luke has in mind, in fact, but also to avoid conflict ahead mm-hmm. of time. I mean, you know, to, to be aware of what can produce conflict. And so, both conflict resolution and conflict avoidance, I think.
1: Joining us today has been Dr. David Bauer. Dr. Bauer is the author of The Book of Acts as Story, a narrative critical study. It's published by Baker Press. Thanks, Dr. Bauer, for taking this time to talk to us about narrative criticism, to talk to us about the Book of Acts, and to give us some encouragement on how we might use the Book of Acts today in faithful ways, responding to the Holy Spirit as he intended Luke's work to impact us carrying on this mission today.
0: Thank you so much, Aaron. It's been a a great uh, joy being with you.
1: Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You make conversations like this possible. The Wesley Seminary Podcast exists to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. We trust that this episode has done just that. And if it has, please share it around. Let others know about it. Like and subscribe on whatever platform that you are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast on. Thanks to Connor, our producer, for his great work. Thanks for helping us to sound a little bit better and to pull these episodes together. Thanks again, Dr. Bauer. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Connor. Always appreciate these opportunities to share and discuss topics and resources for fruitful ministry. So thanks again to everybody. Have a great day.
0: Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.